Welcome to Grace 360, a vibrant discussion on issues of diversity that we hope is engaging, biblical, and slightly entertaining. The goal of these podcasts is to create a healthy, honest, and helpful discussion for Christian educators, parents, and students from a biblical perspective on current cultural issues relating to diversity. Diversity, for our purposes, is related to the acrostic grace, gender, race, age, ability, culture, and economic status. While we don't have all the answers, we hope our discussion is thought-provoking and helpful. Welcome to Grace 360. Well, welcome back. We're excited to have you join us for this podcast. And this podcast is going to cover two things. First of all, we have learned that some schools are using the podcast for training. So we're so excited about that. So we wanted to invite you in on a training that we just did with our faculty and staff. And we also wanted to record a podcast to answer some of the questions that our faculty and staff had during and after the training we just did. So in order to, um, I guess, set up this podcast, I'll do a little intro about what our training looked like, what we did to set it up, and then I'll pass it over to Tamarcus, who will get us started on the actual training. So Diversity, equity, and inclusion has been part of our school for 17 years. It's been part of our faculty and staff training during that time. And before school started, I was asked by our head of school what I felt was necessary in order to train well before our students came back on campus, especially considering all that's been going on in our society. And I'm so grateful that he gave us everything that we had asked for. So this year, before school started, we started with an onboarding of our new staff in regards to diversity, equity, and inclusion in our community, what that means. Then we went into each division and almost had a family time discussion. One of our core values is creating a safe and comfortable learning environment where all of our students are actively engaged in their learning. So we talked about how to do this well with everything going on in society. What are the values, our um, community values in the classroom that we either verbally say or that are nonverbal? How do our parents and our students learn those community values? What are they learning about? us in regards to social media, in regards to the classroom decor that's being set up, the resources that we use, how do we do that well so all of our students and families feel comfortable, um, especially even coming up with politics. So we had that discussion. Then we had some courageous conversations in small groups where we use some resources and then discuss race and the church, and then how that applies to us as a ministry of the church. And then lastly, we felt it was necessary to have a discussion with all of our faculty and staff about a lot of the topics going on in our society, but especially in regards to what those words mean, the topics, the conversations that are happening in regards to privilege, racism, Black Lives Matter. So that is what we did. We had an hour with our faculty and staff. They were all in a room together. We told them that they would spend some time discussing these words, and then then we'd come back together as a big group to share and what those words mean. We did decide that we were going to create um, a place for them to anonymously submit questions during the presentation, um, submit questions and thoughts, actually. And so we created a Slido 
And um, I will say that we were ready. We wanted a place where they could really truly wrestle with questions and not feel that they couldn't ask them because their name was attached or that it wasn't a place. I will say that even though we set up the training with community values, that there were some in our community that did not adhere to those community values. So it can be distracting in the way that um, you could get stuck on the negativity that was shared. But that said, the overwhelming majority was extremely positive and that it also allowed us to know where our faculty and staff is really still wrestling what ideas are wrestling with where we need to come alongside them so um, we had an hour with them we could have spent probably three four five hours with them but we'll go ahead and move into what that looked like for the morning so what we'll do is we're going to go through each of the topics that we hit on and then after that short presentation we are going to interject with the slide of questions that we were asked that we felt pertain to those topics as we present so i'm going to pass it over to marcus who is going to hit the biblical aspect of justice awesome good intro jenny um so I'm going to start off by the same way I did in our training, um, just orchestrating kind of a biblical context um, and really see how not only the teachings we see in the Bible, but even some of the, um, the environment around what was going on uh, can speak to us and, and, and help us today. So if, uh, Ephesians, the whole book really lays out this beautiful mystery of how God is uniting um, us together in Christ and all of the, the riches and the graces and the um, just rewards that he has for us in our relationship with Christ. And particularly in chapter two, um, verses uh, one through 22, he shows us how um, basically what Christ is doing is weaving our story into his story and then also weaving all of our stories together into his story. And so in, in verses one through 10, we get a beautiful picture of how um, all of us have been, were walking our own way according to the ways of the world. Um, but God steps in and he saves us together with Christ. Um, and, and with that comes uh, right, the, the riches of his grace and his mercy. Um, we know that this is a work that he's doing and not of our own. But then in the second half of that chapter, what we see is not only is God reconciling um, us to him, but uh, through Christ, he's reconciling all men to each other. Um, and Paul actually uses the, the statement, right? He says that Christ himself is our peace. And in him, he is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility um, that is between us. And so this is a, right, we cite this to show that this is a central um, work and movement of the gospel, that this isn't just an issue in pop culture, that we're not just talking about this because it's on the news, but this is actually a part of the work of what Christ has done. Now, with that, some might say, you know, well, exactly, like Christ did it, so why are we still talking about it? Um, but if we jump forward a couple chapters to chapter four, um, Paul urges and, and, and um, compels us to uh, be eager to fight for the unity that's in the spirit. And so he wouldn't command us to uh, fight for the unity if the unity just already happened. Um, what we see here is he provides us first with the orthodoxy, right? The proper way of understanding what Christ has accomplished. But then after that, he gives us a practical, right? The orthopraxy of based on what Christ has done and what is true, this then is uh, how you ought to treat and act 
um, between one another um, as you live your day-to-day lives. And so we have a current mandate to continue to do the work of fighting for that unity that Christ has died for. And so um, there's a resource that that we used um, as well. Uh, Timothy Keller wrote, uh, you know, four, four uh, basically essays kind of thinking through this idea of biblical justice and kind of critiquing the uh, critical theory that's that's out there. And one of the beautiful things about the way he addresses this issue is he shows how biblical justice is well-rounded and able to approach the conversation um, in a more holistic way um, than we get from just any one um, other secular view. Um, The other thing that he does really well is he doesn't necessarily discredit the entirety of any other views, but he shows how each one of them, while they may give some good aspects to the conversation, um, all in all, they fall short in some way. Um, And the biblical justice actually gives us a framework of dealing with it holistically. And so I'm just going to briefly go through the um, kind of the five points of the biblical justice that he lays out and then um, answer some of the questions that we got from the presentation with our staff. And so the first thing that he says, right, he says one of the aspects of biblical justice that we see uh, throughout the scriptures is this idea of community. And part of biblical community means that others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntarily. Um, and this this basically is, is just citing the fact that as believers, um, we are called to live in community in such a way that it's it's not just a matter of like, you know, if I, if I want to or if I have enough, I give, but that we are called to live in community in such a way where we understand that what we have doesn't so doesn't solely belong to us and is and all in all isn't even ours but it's god's and he's given it to us to steward to help our community flourish the second thing that he talks about is equity right that everyone must be treated equally and with dignity and he cites passages from the old testament that speak of the israelites creating laws in such a way that they are fair um, for the for the foreigner as well as for the native and that everyone is able to be treated on a level playing field, that there is not um, um, favoritism shown towards one um, and against the other. Uh, The third thing that he talks through is this idea of corporate responsibility. Um, And and I'll just say say the corporate responsibility is three, um, individual responsibility is four. And I'm going to kind of talk about them together because I think this is one of the um, really beautiful parts about his uh, essay. So with corporate responsibility, right, that, that I sometimes am responsible and involved in other people's sins. And that could be responsible in terms of me um, being a part of a group that has participated in some sort of wrongdoing. This could be me um, influencing someone else in such a way that I lead them into sin. Um, or this could be uh, also, right, this idea of institutionalized Seeing well, you know, there could be literally legislation or rules that are set up in such a way that they um, discriminate against others. So he cites passages in Exodus and in Deuteronomy um, where God um, talks about how the people have set up, you know, high interest loans that unfairly um, affect some rather than others, or they delay the wages or they give incredibly low wages to some and not to others. And it starts to create this. Um, distinction between the people 
um, that isn't consistent with that, uh, with that unity and that equity. And so he holds them all accountable for, for this system because it's so widespread. And typically for systems like that to sustain, there has to be um, a lot of people who are in agreement with it. Now with that, um, you know, some might say, yes, this is why uh, this is solely to blame for the ills of others, but biblical justice goes a step further and says, well, no, there's still individual responsibility, right? That while there's this corporate reality that there can be things outside of my control that affect, you know, my well-being, I am also held accountable to my actions and the things that I do. Um, and then he he pushes that even further, that it's not even just about the ills of, of what I do, but even the good, right, that, that we are not solely responsible for the good that comes to us. And so, you know, some might say, well, hey, if you just if you just work hard, you know, then everything, you know, will kind of fall in place. And what he says is actually when we look at it biblically, we know that that's not the case, that that just my own hard work doesn't always lead to great success. And so he says it like this. He says the Bible does not teach that your success or failure is wholly due to individual choice. And so we have, we are responsible for our sins, but we are not always responsible for our outcomes. Um, and so uh, this is just a, like I say, it's a, a holistic way of understanding that um, the lives we live and the things that affect us and the things that come from us is very complex. It's a mix of things that we do. It's a mix of what people around us in our community do and all of those things, um, uh, bear on what comes of our situations. And then fifth, right, that there's a responsibility as believers for advocacy, right, that we must be concerned with the marginalized and the poor. Um, and, and I mean, what he says is, is beautiful, right? He quotes Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, and then comments on it, right? The verse says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And he says, the Bible does not say speak up for the rich and the powerful, not because they are less important as persons before God, but because they don't need you to do this, right? People who already have power, people who already have wealth, people who already have a voice and a platform can speak up for themselves. But it's those who don't have that platform, who are often unheard, who are often unseen, that we as believers are called to diligently seek out and speak up on their behalf. And so... These, um, these are all of the, the, the points of biblical justice that, like I say, holistically um, give us a good framework of dealing with this well. Um, and I want to address one of the first questions that came up was, um, what did Timothy Keller mean when he talked about community, right? So that first point when he says, others have a claim to my stuff, right? Isn't generosity an expression of stewardship? Uh, how could he say that other people have a claim to my stuff? Um, before I jump in, I'm curious to see, team, what do you guys uh, think of that? That's a, that's a great question. I actually got asked that question as well um, from somebody who just texted me afterwards because I think people have a real difficulty um, with that concept because they immediately think about uh, in terms of like, are you saying, you know, government, all right, socialism, um, you know, the, the idea that uh, other people have a, a claim uh, to my stuff. Um, and, uh, and so, I, you know, I responded and I was just like, from a biblical perspective, there's no such thing as my stuff. There's our stuff, God's stuff, uh, and he allows us uh, to steward it. And so, you know, God is in control of all these things. Um, you know, the, the question then becomes, 
um, are you using God's stuff the right way? In uh, today's culture, especially in America, we think of people in terms of like being a self-made man, that I worked hard, that I created these things, and I don't want government to direct what I do with these things. But in reality, if people were as generous with what they've made their income as they probably should be, government wouldn't have to be stepping in there and doing things. The, the church used to do these things before, and now we're relying on government to do them. And so the, it's, it's far less you know, equitable and, and far less able to do that. And so I think that you know, the concept is we have to go back to this you know, biblical understanding that all things are God's. We're given talents, resources, um, you know, even, even time, right, to steward and to steward well. Uh, and I think if, if we did a better job of it, then, um, you know, the, the government um, interference in it would be far less than it is today. Uh, I think we just do such a, a lousy job of actually helping the poor, of actually uh, benefiting those who, who need it. So that's a thing that, you know, people have to wrestle with individually. Um, but I'm glad that the question came up because as Keller was talking about, you know, community, it, it did kind of rub people the wrong way. You could tell uh, that in today's culture, the idea of community versus individualism, we, we err on the side of individualism. I want to add to that. I want to say, you know, when we use the GRACE acronym, acrostic, whatever you want to say it is, we have economic status at the end. And as a school, we have it said that God owns it all. Economic status refers to the stewardship responsibility associated with material wealth and possessions he provides to each person. And so as a school, we've, divide, we've defined that economic status as the stewardship of God's provision. All right. And I think, so from a biblical perspective too, kind of, it made me look at the law differently. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse eight, God tells the people that, hey, when you build, because the roofs of their houses were flat. He said, when you build new houses, make sure that you put like a railway or a parapet around the edges. Um, least you, you know, be responsible of blood guilt if someone fell off of your roof. Now, this is the, the interesting thing about it, right? Like, I think in today's culture, the, our, our gut response would be, right, who gets to tell me how to build my house? Um, well, I never get a roof, so why should I have to worry about doing the roof? Or, like, nobody should have any business getting on my roof. Or if they got on the roof, then they should be smart enough to know that, right? And that wasn't the heart of God. Like, God's heart was in your regular dealings with, you know, quote, unquote, your stuff, um, you have a responsibility to be conscious about how your stuff affects other people. Um, and in and, and, and thinking about other people and what you do, hey, why don't you go ahead and put this on your roof so that you can be prepared for if somebody is up there, right? You can be in a position to anticipate meeting the need. Um, and I, I just thought that was a, that was a huge um, concept. And we see that in multiple ways, right? Uh, Jenny, before we were talking about um, how he says, Hey, like, you know, don't, don't harvest the, the edges, you know, of your, of your field so that those who may need or who are hungry, they can glean, um, from, from what's left there. And there's this, this general concept of, Hey, what you have, right. You need to be conscious about how you can intentionally use what you have for others. And that looks like, um, right. Personally, uh, your, your possessions, your money, your wealth, whatever the case may be. Um, and then, you know, at all in all as a church, right, we have to have that kind of community um, mentality uh, as well. And so 
Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's important to note the difference here, and he and he kind of gets at this when he gets into the details. Um, but you know, you have like the the you know kind of I think the typical capitalist view of like right every like it's all my stuff and I work for it, so I get to use it how I want. And then you have the socialist view that's like well, actually everything belongs to the state, and they they tell us what we get to have. And the biblical view is somewhere in the middle that says right all of its guides. He's giving it to me to steward. And yes, I could use it all on me, but the heart of God would be, hey, I'm going to use what I need for myself. And then I'm going to find out strategically, right, how can I use what I have to benefit others out of, out of the generosity of my heart? Um, but for the Christian, I think, and that's kind of what the question got to, for the Christian, it's more than just, you know, well, I have the option, um, right? The heart of God compels us to see it as an obligation. And so, um, yeah, that's my, my thoughts. Jerry Tozer, um, in his, in the pursuit of God in chapter two, um, which he entitled the blessedness of possessing nothing and how, when we free ourselves from the tyranny of, you know, being slaves to the tyranny of things, um, how we are free. Um, I think if we recognize that everything we have as hard as we have worked for it, Everything we have, we may have earned, but we were able to work for it and earn it because of God's gifts, his talents, his blessings. Um, so therefore, it's not really mine. Ultimately, it's the Lord's, and it's not meant solely for my gain. It's meant to be a blessing to those around me, whether they're believers or not. Yeah, we had one more question on to Marcus's um, presentation. And the question was, if there is one truth, God's truth, biblical truth, how can we not all land in one place? How can two opposing views be biblical? And Dan, you know a little bit more background about this question in particular. So do you want to take that and run with that question? Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the things is whenever we're talking about from a Christian perspective, we're talking about complex cultural issues. The idea, right, that, that you would have is um, just like anything from a biblical position, right, if there's God's truth on this particular issue, you know, why is there so much disunity uh, and, you know, diversity of thought on these particular issues? Like, why, why can't we come to some common ground um, and, and common understanding? And, and I think, you know, that's, that's one of the, the questions that people have you know, you, you hear people, you know, coming to different conclusions on things. And I think one of the things that, that we actually talk about, you know, in our presentation is we said, you know, there, there's going to be areas that we don't all agree on. Um, but, you know, the, the question really kind of goes to the, the heart of the matter. And that is, you know, shouldn't we as believers, you know, all agree on everything, right? You know, can we, can we really, uh, as believers, um, all saying that, that Christ is our common ground and our unity, Right? Why is there such a you know a, a difference in thought and opinion between us as believers? And I think that's you know the heart of the question. Um, but you know as as we as we talk about it, the the concept really is um, you know we have to ask ourselves you know what, what is essential from a from a biblical standpoint, right? And those areas that we say uh, that these are areas that we have to agree on, right? And then what are the non-essentials um, in in terms of right biblical principles, salvation. Um, you know, who God said he is, um, that he, um, in a sense, um, allows us, right, to, in a sense, come to different areas of, of like, walking out our faith, of living it out. Uh, and we're going to do that, right, differently as, as believers. And so, um, you know, so the, the question really is the, the idea of, are, are we saying, 
um, you know, that we have a, a difference in opinion about what God's word says on something, uh, or do we have a difference in opinion about how people are living it out? Uh, and and that's that's kind of the you know the questions seem to be um, that you know are you know why is there such a difference in what God said? And, and you know the response is really it's not what God's saying that we're having a difference in opinion about. It's really how we're you know living it out as believers. Uh, and there, there should be that that unity that comes from the Spirit of God when He brings us together. But unfortunately, what you see in our culture today, and really throughout human history, you see that you know uh, there's a lot of people who are at different areas of their walk with the Lord and in different areas of sanctification with the Lord, um, and and they. Uh, as just like, you know, I do, right, need to grow in some areas, right? And as I get closer to God, I think I get closer to my brothers and sisters in Christ as well, and we have a greater unity. But the reality is that, you know, that the church is so divided on so many different things because there's the human aspect of it, right? Where when we get into heaven and we see all things, right, we're not walking by faith, we're walking by sight, it is going to be, you know, extremely different. Um, But here there's going to be, you know, an area um, that uh, allows for um, you know each of us to kind of live out our faith in a way, and there's going to be some differences in, in in how we do that. So I think you know that kind of gets to the question: Was there something else that somebody wanted to add to that on that question? I love the way you 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 worded that. Is the difference between what God says or how I'm choosing to live it out in my life? Is that where the difference comes in? I love that. Um, I'd never thought of it that way. That was that was excellent, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, and I think just piggybacking on that, um, so when I was in college, uh, there was, you know, I had, there was a fairly good population of, um, well, there was a Korean church that was nearby and a few friends of ours who were Korean. And I remember one day we were getting ready to go out, we're doing street evangelism, and we were going to pray, and they decided, you said, you know, we want to, they were like, we want to pray the way, you know, we do at our, you know, Korean church sometimes. And instead of each person praying, you know, individually, everybody prays out loud at the same time. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, this is going to be chaotic. Like, how is this going to work? We're not going to be able to understand what each other is saying. And like, how am I going to be able to like think through my prayer? And I just remember we did it and it was so interesting. And it was actually such a beautiful thing to hear a body of believers all crying out to God together. And I remember like, you know, I couldn't make out what was being said, but then this was the encouraging part. It's like, wow, we're all sitting here crying out to God and around the world, there are other people crying out to God as well. And he hears all of us. Um, And like, that was a, that was a beautiful aspect of prayer that I miss if I don't do something outside of what I've considered to be the norm. Um, another situation, I remember going to, we had a, a, on a mission trip to Belize and we went to a church, um, to worship. So we had went to like three or four different churches while we were there. And one of the things that I quickly realized is, um, they do church completely different than the way we do, namely in that, you know, here it's like, if church is supposed to be from nine thirty to 11 at 11 o'clock, everybody wants to be out. We need to be out the doors. It shouldn't go a minute over. In Belize, church was over when church was over. So if there was still more to be said, if we still are singing the song, if we don't feel like the spirit is done yet, then we're going to stay out there. Um, and, you know, there were times we were at church for who knows how long. Um, and the other thing was people dance 
during worship and not just like, you know, kind of moving around in the pew. I mean, the seats were moved out of the way and it was a, it literally was a whole dance in the middle of worship. And, you know, I remember, you know, contrasting that with my college experience, we weren't even allowed to dance, you know, where I went to, where I got my undergrad um, versus this is the norm of, of worship here. And so I think, you know, thinking in terms of that, like, like Dan said is, Hey, God, we know that God has called us to worship. We know that God has called us to prayer. But the way different people in different cultures in different places exercise and work those things out look differently. Um, And so, you know, it's very possible that being in a place like the United States where there are such a blend of cultures that, you know, hey, all of us trying to walk out and live out what God has called us to do may look different in some areas. And I know those may seem like more... Uh, what do you want to call it, less uh, critical areas to disagree. Um, but even in some of the what we would see as more critical areas, I think if we approach it with that same um, level of sensitivity and nuance and understand that like, hey, before I'm so quick to get my brother or sister to see it my way, um, realize that, man, there's something that I can learn more about God Right. As I try to see, you know, well, what would as you're following God and I know you love Jesus, like what would cause you to land there? And how can I learn more about the heart of God from our difference rather than just seeing it all as needing to be monolithic? I love that. Um, so I guess after this, what we did was we, after Tamarcus presented on biblical justice, then we had Dan present on what we were going to be discussing for today and um, for that day of training. So Dan, do you want to move into what that looked like? Yeah. So we start talking about um, the importance of finding common uh, understanding in terms of uh, the words that we use. Uh, and just, uh, I, I was talking about how important it is. And, and, and a lot of this comes from as I, as I read more, as I get into conversations more about uh, these particular issues, sometimes it's, it's very interesting. I feel like, um, you know, I'm using one particular word and somebody else is using the same word, but meaning something completely different. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Jenny had mentioned to me something about, you know, racism. Uh, and, you know, I was like, you know, yeah, and this is what I you know, mean by racism. And, and she's like, well, that's, that's not what other people mean by racism. I'm like, what? Like, that's right. I mean, we all mean the same thing. It's a, you know, and so the, the reality of it was just kind of finding this uh, common understanding, right, that when we use, you know, the word, um, you know, racism, or we use the word, you know, bias or prejudice, uh, when we talk about things like Black Lives Matter, and, and it's, it's when I said uh, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, Jenny mentioned that we had a, a Slido, um, you know, uh, app available for people to ask questions. It was interesting because uh, we haven't even gotten to it yet. I just threw it out there as one of the phrases that we're going to cover. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, our, uh, our little app started blowing up with people starting uh, to make comments and ask questions at the same time on that. Um, but the reality is, was um, just that idea of, of having a common understanding of words uh, is going to be so important for us to have this conversation, right, where we're actually talking about the same thing. Um, and not, you know, as I said, kind of like, you know, two ships passing in the night, right, where you're just, you know, you're lobbing your comments at somebody, they're lobbing their comments back at you, but we're actually not finding common ground. Um, I did mention uh, the next slide that we threw up there was not only are words important, right, in, in shaping kind of the narrative, right, but since a picture is worth a thousand words, um, I threw a picture up there of uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling, right, and I just, uh, I you know, everybody kind of has that picture in their mind, 
right, that, uh, that there, uh, Colin Kaepernick a number of years ago uh, when he was playing in the NFL uh, began to kneel during the national anthem. Uh, and, and just kind of the, the, the idea was, you know, what, what does that mean to you? Like when he does this, right, when he did that, um, you know, what did, what did you think he was communicating, right? And I know for most people that I talk to uh, who are white, uh, when you say that, right, the, the, the common narrative that they have is that, uh, that he was showing disrespect for the country. Uh, he was showing disrespect for, uh, you know, our military personnel, uh, and, and, you know, by, by kneeling during the national anthem, uh, which it was very interesting, right? Because not only has Colin Kaepernick uh, said that that's not what he was intending to do and not what he was trying to communicate, but he was trying to draw attention to police brutality, right? And the injustice that African-Americans are facing in this country that had nothing to do with, you know, showing disrespect for a country or, you know, the, the military. Um, but it's just very interesting how that that narrative um, becomes the narrative that you place on something as opposed to listening to what the other person is trying to say. And so uh, I put the picture up there, right? Of course, you could tell, you know, people squirming in their seats. Um, but that's the, that's the idea, right? Is where does your narrative come from? And have you, have you checked your narrative against the reality or the truth of what, what the other person means so that you can talk about it? Now, uh, if Colin Kaepernick were kneeling to show disrespect for military personnel, well, then have that conversation. If Colin Kaepernick were kneeling to show something, right, then, then have a, a, that, that conversation, right? But because he says he's kneeling to draw attention to something, then that should be the conversation that you have. Uh, you know, if, if you're protesting something, right, then let's actually talk about the protest as opposed to the way that a particular person is protesting. That's an entirely different conversation. So we just start talking about uh, these particular common words, uh, and then um, Cindy started giving us the goals, right, of, um, you know, having these conversations and what this training is going to be about. Like, what, what are we actually intending to do? So, Cindy, you came up next. Well, when you um, popped up the picture of, of Colin Kaepernick, I don't know if anyone noticed, but there was a visceral reaction in the room. Um, and photos like that tend to generate a response and a reaction, more a reaction than a response from people. Um, so what we always need to do is we need to set the parameters for that conversation, right? In order to keep us in the lane, to keep the conversation moving forward. Um, so we always have these things that are known as community values, and we're not going to take the time to go through them right now. We'll attach those to the podcast where people can, who are interested can go and look at them. Um, and it's, it, it's in order for us to figure out where the lane or the line is crooked um, and to keep us moving forward, as I said, you know, kind of like putting up a little, the little gutter ball guards when you take your little one to go to the bowling alley so that they can hit a strike. So again, if you're interested in those, they're going to be available as an attachment to this podcast. Our goals, our goals are to alleviate the misunderstandings of the terminology. You know, um, we're oftentimes using the same terminology that the world uses, uses, but we are using, our definitions are different. Um, at one time, you could say that is evil. You could say, give, provide a specific example of that is evil. Or you would just say the word evil, and everyone had a general definition for it that was pretty common. Today, that's no longer the case. Today, society is um, changing the definition of words. So the first thing is that our goal, our, our very first goal is to alleviate the misunderstanding. So that's why we go through these terms and take the time of going through it. And then we want to create a common understanding of the words that are used by society at large. Um, and we, the reason why we do this is because we want to invite, we want to motivate our faculty and our staff to be part of that discussion and part of the work that is needed 
right? Um, we know that none of this is going to be solved on this side of, of heaven, but that should not keep us from trying to move ourselves towards a solution. Um, and then lastly, and the most important one is that we want to create a common understanding of how words are understood when used biblically. Again, um, you know, we don't know that a line is crooked until we compare it to a line that is straight. And our straight line, our plumb line is always, always going to have to be scripture. And if we use scripture, then that means that we will help, it'll help us to figure out, as Tamarcus was saying earlier, the difference between biblical conviction, biblical truth, and cultural um, maybe cultural uh, understandings or cultural tradition. Um, and, and when we take those cultural traditions, you know, the way they worship differently in Latin America and in other parts of the world in comparison to American churches and how we typically worship in American churches, um, it's pretty different. I knew if I was going to go to church with my abuela that I was going to be in church at 1.30, 2 o'clock on a Sunday, and that meant that I was probably going to miss the Miami Dolphins football game. If I went to the church that I typically went with, then I would be home in time to make the dip, bust out the chips, and find myself a comfortable seat in my living room to watch, right? So if we figure out the difference between how a word is used biblically and defined biblically, um, and then we can compare that to how our cultural traditions and society defines them, and then we can figure out where the line is straight, according to scripture, in comparison to how we as imperfect human beings sometimes take and twist those things. So that was, those are our goals, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw it back over to Tamarcus, and he's going to take one of our first terms here. All right. So um, basically what we walk through is um, four, four terms, and I kind of walk through them in terms of, you know, since we're talking to a um, group of phenomenally educators, um, I thought that it would be really helpful to kind of put the ball in their field. And so uh, we talked through bias, prejudice, discrimination, and racism. And pretty much what we did was we had a blank slide initially of the terms and we gave them, you know, a few minutes to discuss it between themselves. And then after they kind of walked through, you know, their, their ideas of it for, you know, a couple minutes, then um, we offered uh, definitions for them to be able to go off of. And so um, bias, we went through basically, you know, I used an example like, all right, we have, you know, we have students and I was like, bias would be, right, it is something that we all have and, you know, we could equate it almost to preference. So if I say, right, I am biased towards students who get their work completed versus students who don't get their work completed, right? It's just a, a, a preference that I have, right? I would rather have it that all my students will get all their work done on time so that I can grade it at the same time, put it in the grade book, and we all live happily ever after. Um, and, you know, that that is a, a natural human response to just how we really just create categories of things. Um, next, right, we have prejudice. And prejudice takes bias a step further, and it's when I start to establish a attitude towards my bias. So not only is it that I prefer students who get their work done versus students who don't, but I am, right, I am pleased, I am um, excited about, maybe more empathetic towards students who get their work done, and maybe I have more of a attitude of apathy and um, disregard for students who don't. And so maybe language that comes around that is like, hey, you know, students who get their work done, like they really want to succeed. They want to do well on their assignments. I know they're giving their best effort. I know, right, I kind of 
have created this narrative around why they get their work done. And then students who generally don't get their work done, they typically aren't motivated. They, they don't care about my class or the assignment. They're not doing their best. They're not taking it seriously. And so I've started to create attitudes around it. And even at this level, right, this happens to all of us. We do this internally. Um, and I would, I would say at this point, I would e equate that with, with temptation, right? That at this point, I have the ability to either recognize that I have this particular attitude towards um, an individual or person, and I can either choose to label it for what it is and say, you know what, let me, let me shelf that or let me, let me die to that. Is this actually true or do I need to look into this more? Or we can choose to act upon it, right? And at the point where we begin to act, um, this is where we step into discrimination, right? So, you know, let's say we got two students, you know, Johnny and Jill, right? Jill is a student who typically gets her work done. She comes up and she says, you know, uh, Mr. Raglan, I haven't got my work done. Uh, or I got my work done, but I left it at home. You know, could I bring it tomorrow and still get credit? And you're like, right? My attitude towards her is, you know, she generally gets her work done. She means well. She just forgot. Absolutely. There's grace for that. You can bring the assignment tomorrow. Student B, right? Johnny comes and he's like, hey, I did my assignment. I got it done, but I, I left it at home. We were in a hurry. Can I bring it tomorrow and get credit? And I've decided, you know what? Right. Same situation. Two students both didn't get their work done. But one, I'm saying, you know what? You don't really care about your assignments. This is characteristic of you. I'm not going to bring, you know, no grace. It's a zero. It was due today. And at that point, right, there's there's a discrimination in a way that we extended this kind of grace. Now, when we step into racism, right, and we equate these things, now what I've started to do is maybe this idea that I've had towards the individual, right, that, you know, some students who prefer to get their work done, some who don't, I've now labeled that attachment um, as a characteristic of a, of a particular race, right? So if I go so far as to say, well, my Asian students typically get their work done because they really care about their assignments. And my students of color, whether black and Latino, they typically don't care about getting their work done and getting their assignments in. And so I'm now by default, when my, when my classroom comes in and I see I have this student and this student, I already start to exhibit attitudes towards my Asian students in one way because I assume, hey, this is typically what's true of them. And then I assume another attitude towards my students of color. And so this is kind of the progression of, of how those things work. And, and the way I think of it is, hey, when we don't check our biases and our prejudices, right, they will bleed into and become our, um, they will essentially become our discrimination and racism, right? They will start to exert those ideas and those thoughts onto the entire groups of people. And so, um, those are, you know, helpful definitions because, you know, sometimes people are calling racism, what's really a prejudice. Or sometimes people are talking about bias and they call it racism. And it's important to know that, that those terms really align with, with different things. 
And I think we got some questions from that segment of it. And so the first question we got um, really kind of does, deals with that bias, that explicit, implicit bias that, um, that we often have. I mean, we all have implicit biases, right? But the need to check them all the time. And the question came from your team's perspective, what, what might be some blind spots for us as a faculty and staff related to DEI? Does anyone, and diversity, equity, inclusion, of, of course, is DEI. Does anyone want to jump into that? What do you think are some blind spots that we see on our campus? I, I would. Go. I think the most immediate one that I see is uh, particularly in, in, in that context is, um, you know, we have a, a wonderful program that helps our students who have, you know, some different, um, right, uh, learning challenges um, in our learning lab. And so, I think of it as the difference of, hey, what's, what's the criteria that you're using in your, in your head where you decide, you know, hey, I got this one student, you know, they're great, they're struggling, um, maybe we need to talk to their parents about getting learning, you know, utilizing the learning lab, or maybe, you know, utilizing some testing to see if there's some learning differences um, that are taking place here that's, you know, causing them to struggle um, or have a difficult time in class versus the student that you've just chalked up where they're just a bad student and I'm not going to pursue, you know, them possibly having, you know, learning lab or not possibly pursuing them being able to, um, you know, maybe get tested or something like that because I've, you know, we can, we can easily, right, as we categorize people, right, why would we try to get extra help? Well, because we see that there's potential in the student and maybe they just need a couple extra tools in order to be successful. And it's like, you know, where do we, what criteria are we giving to another student where we see that same kind of idea, but we don't necessarily see a potential. We just see a lack of care, a lack of ability, a lack of effort. And so we don't take the same steps to give them all the tools they need as another. And so um, I think that's a, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I see a blind spot in how we worship and celebrate on campus. I mean, different cultures celebrate and worship differently. Um, so that's where I see a blind spot. Dan, you see any of them? Yeah, I think from my perspective, right, my, my blind spot, um, and it may be shared by others, right, is you simply just don't know what you don't know. Um, and so when, when people are talking about these things, the concept one comes up, um, you, know, you know, why are we doing this? I don't even see a problem uh, in it. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the idea that I see things um, you know, when I, when I look at, you know, our students and, and different activities or whatever, and, and I simply, I don't know what their experiences are, what their hurdles are, what their issues are. Um, and so I, I evaluate everything right through my particular, you know, view of life. And I, I don't take the time to understand how other people see things, you know, and so that just that, you know, the, the ignorance is bliss, right? This is a very difficult concept to really wrestle with, to understand that different people come from different backgrounds, have, have different perspectives, like that, in a sense, everybody should see the world the same way that I see it. Um, and, you know, and so I'm going to treat everybody like, like I would want to be treated, right? Just that, that, that idea. Uh, and, and the real, reality of it is, is while it's true, I want to treat everybody, you know, with fairness and respect, treating everybody as if they're exactly the same as I am is not doing that. I think you have to, you know, lean into the conversation and understand that different students are coming from different places, different backgrounds, different, have different experiences, um, you know, and, and, you know, their, their understanding of the world, um, you know, 
it's going to be a little bit varied from yours. And so learning to appreciate that, um, you know, one of, one of the things, you know, that Jenny had uh, done with me, you know, and I've mentioned this before is, you know, I, if, you know, in my job, I get to bring in a lot of different speakers and Jenny just mentioned one time, like, how come all the speakers, um, you know, look like you that you bring in. And I was thinking, I think that's a compliment, but what do you, what do you mean? Right. And she's like, they're all white. And I was like, Oh, I, I thought you meant they were all, you know, devilishly handsome like myself, but um, you know, I, and the, the, the concept was it's, it's the only people I listened to, right? It's the only books that I read. I mean, how, how am I supposed to find out other people? Um, and, the, and, you know, as you begin to do the work of, of listening to other people, finding other people, you realize that there's, there's you know, men and women out there from, from all different, you know, ethnic backgrounds and all different, you know, areas of life that just, they, they love Jesus, right? And they, um, they speak about, you know, Jesus a little bit differently than what I'm used to. Um, they have a little bit different take here, a little bit different take there. But, you know, putting those people in front of our kids was just such an important aspect for me because, um, you know, a lot of them look like some of our kids, but they don't look like me. Uh, and so, you know, I think just that idea of, of you know, you don't know what you don't know, um, but you need to learn, you know, you need to lean into it and you need to listen, you need to learn, um, you need to understand why we're doing this diversity training, right? One of the things I thought was really interesting is, is you know, we're in the middle of all this COVID stuff, right? And we just had, um, you know, our COVID task force go up there for the seventh time to tell us, you know, all the different things that we needed to hear, right? And, you know, they, they said it, right? Like, we've done this seven times in the last week. You know, and here we are talking about, um, you know, racial diversity and inclusion and all these different things, which has been an area of common misunderstanding and, and tension, right, in human history for the last, you know, thousands of years. And we're doing one training in one hour, uh, basically for the entire year. Um, this stuff needs to be talked about over and over and over again and explored. And, and, you know, you need to be reading books on it and some books you're going to agree with and some books you're not, you're going to, you're going to need to lead, you know, learn to listen to different podcasts and some podcasts you're going to like, and some you're not. And, you know, you just, you need to explore some different things and, and, and get out of your silo of always doing the same thing with the same people, you know, talking about the same things all the time. Uh, and begin to explore some other things. So I think just that, that you know, my blind spot was always that um, I think I see everything, but really I had a very myopic view, um, you know, outside of what my norm was. I, you know, I read the same books. I listened to the same people. I thought I was, you know, well-educated on things. Um, and I learned, you know, how little I actually knew about these things. So this is why it's been really helpful for me to be a part of not only this podcast, but this school um, to be included in these conversations because I'm, I'm learning so much in the process. And I think a lot of other people need to understand they need to learn a, a lot as well. I like that. Um, for me, I think one of the biggest blind spots that I see often, and I do this myself, is we're quick to um, assign motive. So if we bring up a situation, we're quick to dismiss the situation as um, saying, well, that person probably didn't mean that, or you don't know that person. Or we do the opposite and we jump to the conclusion of, well, that person is simply racist or that person is simply this. And I, I tend to fall in that category and I have to check my bias. I have to check my assigning motive. And I have to start asking more questions and diving more deeper. And I think not only do that we do that individually, but I think we do that institutionally as well. And so that that is one of the blind spots that I think I see. Um, another question. Okay, so something that came up that I think we didn't do so well with when we were discussing all these terms is one of the things we did not define well was race. Um, there's a big confusion on race when we talk about racism in particular. 
And that is, so how are other countries racist? I've had that question quite a bit when you look at structural or institutional racism, you say, well, if, um, if it's racist towards people of color, what does that look like in other countries? And so I've had to go through and explain that race is a sociological concept that the United States uses in um, categorizing people. When you get the census, you check off boxes according to their race categories. When you apply to our school, we have racial categories that our parents can self-identify their students as. And so I think it's an important thing to understand that not all countries categorize people as the United States does with race. For instance, I grew up in Honduras. We have a different, there's a different hierarchy system. I would say every, every society has a hierarchy system. And Honduras, I would say it's solely based on economics, which is based, of course, which has education and business ownership and all that other stuff associated with it. But they don't have racial categories that you check off when you're um, applying for a job or when you're applying to a school or when you're doing the census. And so as we, as we discussed that, I think it was important that we really did look at race. And so with that, we had some questions that we did not address. And so one of the questions was, can you share how the term minority for those who are non-Caucasian can be seen as demeaning and as a negative connotation. And I'll let you, I'll let somebody, whoever wants to answer that, answer that, but I'll throw this out first of all. I will say that within the world I work in at diversity, equity, inclusion, minority is becoming an outdated term. It is now underrepresented. And that's simply because if you look at racial categories in our country, that what we would have originally decided is the majority of the white population, it is becoming um, the minority as the minority was used to be said in regards to the growing of different populations. And so we now use the term underrepresented, but I'll let somebody else jump in into why minority um, can be seen as demeaning or negative. I think just from a, from a logical standpoint, right? Majority connotates that you're in power, and minority um, represents that, that you're not. Um, and even if that's a reality, the concept is, um, you're, you know, when, you, when we use the term majority and minority, we're not just talking about simple numbers, because as you mentioned, those numbers are, you know, recently and in the future will definitely be flipped, where, you know, if, if I refer to a white person from this point forward, you're probably referring to them from a minority perspective. What, we, what we're talking about is power. Right? And if, if you're constantly reminding a particular group of people, right, you're not the people in power, I'm referring to you as the minority, then that, that concept is, it's like, wait, well, hang on a second. There's more of us than there are of you. And it's like, yes, but we're, you know, we're in power. Um, so I think what, what people are saying is the way that it's used isn't to denote the particular um, aspect of how many people um, there are or have been in the past. The way that it's used is to you know, to represent, you know, who's in power and who's not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to make sure that, you know, what, you know, your phrase, you know, underrepresentation, right, is a better, you know, reference. There may be more people, but if the one white guy in the room is the guy, you know, who's in power, then the rest of the people are underrepresented. So that's an idea that, you know, language obviously changes over time. What might have been acceptable, you know, 40 years ago uh, may not be acceptable today. And we need to, you know, pay attention to those things. Uh, and so, you know, just because I've used the term in the past doesn't mean that I can continue to use something in the future and I need to pay attention to those things as they change. So uh, if somebody says that, hey, when you say this, this is what it means to me, right? I think those are things that, oh, okay, that's great. You know, I, I didn't know that. 
Um, I wouldn't have known that, right? Because when I when I use that term, I'm part of the majority. So obviously, you know, it's it's a plus aspect for me. But when somebody else brings that up, I think it's something that you know we need to learn to listen to and say, okay, so what's a better way of talking about groups of people when I need to and demonstrating uh, you know that there's a, a difference between X, Y, and Z, right? So that that's an area that I think we can you know listen to and, and learn from. Well, I think it's also we live in a country that large in part decisions are made by majority rule like we vote we're we're trying to think of the greater good um in some ways we can be pretty you know uh utilitarian so you know the the ends justify the means and if we can get the greatest good for the greatest amount and so when you're in the category of the minority right we may not like actively think this but kind of what is underlying in that is like hey this is just a small portion of you know the people or the opinion or the idea and so this can you know in that kind of a framework this can be sacrificed for the greater good in terms of whether that's the idea or priority or whatever the case may be and so i think you know as you as you said it's important to um to understand that right words have meaning and so um trying to trying to find different ways to i guess identify that could be more helpful. All right. Well, then another question that came up in regards to race was, is it okay to say this black guy I work with, hey, do you know that black girl or do I need to say African-American? And so I'm almost within that question. I think there's two responses, right? There's there's two things going on. And I will say, first of all, that um, I, I will just start this out from the beginning is a white person and in this work, I personally always will fall back on African-American unless that person gives me permission to use black almost. I, for me personally, and this is me personally, I feel like that um, within our country, the white population has oftentimes given names to the other populations. And so I want to take that that point of respect and that point of humility. And, um, and for me, that is using the term African-American unless the other person allows me to step in to the space and use the term black. But um, anybody else want to address the two things going on in that question? And also to Marcus, you know, address what you would prefer as, an, as a black African-American male. What term do you prefer and why? And then what is the other thing in that question when it says, can I use this black guy I work with? Or, hey, do you know the black girl at? Can I address it historically for just a moment? Yeah, you go Walter first. Marcus gets himself set. Okay, he didn't look like he was ready to go, so I'm jumping in there real quick. Um, you know, if I am at the store, and, or if I'm, if I'm working at a store and somebody needs to see one of the associates, would I ever think of saying, well, you're going to look for a white guy in a pair of khaki pants and a red shirt? Or would I simply say, you're going to look for a guy in a, in a pair of khaki pants and a red shirt? So I would say, no, it's never appropriate to say this black guy I work with. It's just simply this guy I work with, right? Historically, you know, we also have to be careful with the term black because oftentimes the word black is associated with the negative, right? Devil's food cake is black. It's dark. It's chocolate, right? The guy, the bad, the bad cowboy in every Western always wore a black hat, right? So we have to take a look at it that way. It's not a term that necessarily can be, um, you know, we know that Yankee Doodle Dandy actually started off as being derogatory towards the colonists and the, and the patriots, but that was able to be twisted in, and they took a negative and turned it into a positive. Historically, I'm not sure that you could ever take that and turn it 
right? It's not as it's not as a loaded a term as the N word. Um, but Jenny, what you said about relationship and being invited to use that term, I think is very important um, there as far as that's concerned. Um, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna take this in just a little bit. A, a different route. I think it's interesting that different cultural groups are starting to question, even in a different language, the terms and the phrases that are being used. There's a phrase in Spanish um, that basically translates to working like a black man that is oftentimes used in Spanish. And the younger Latino generations are looking at that phrase and saying, wait a second, we need to stop using that word, that phrase, because it's derogatory. So we need to quit using that that phrase. Um, and of course, it's, they consider, it's considered derogatory because it was the black population that was doing the work, right? The, and, and you can't say African-American if you're in a place like Cuba or if you're in a place like Mexico or in the Dominican, etc. Um, so they're challenging, even the younger generations, including the ones that are now in the United States, are challenging phrases and terminology that have been used by their grandparents and their parents and their great-grandparents going back. Um, I think it's something that we need to be very careful with. You know, why is it important that we use that adjective, you know, when describing a person? Um, so there's a little bit of history um, as to where and how the term has oftentimes been used. Um, are you ready to go, Tamarcus? Yes. Um, I don't think in terms of a situation like that, Black, African-American, like, is, is necessary. And here's why. I think... I think that's one of the traces of how racism works in our country that like maybe seems like careless but or seems harm harmless, but it just perpetuates it. I mean, and it's it's the subtleties, right? It's like, oh like oh that this person is a horrible driver. They cut me off. Why are they driving so slow? And we drive up and they're like, Yep, that old lady or like, Yep, you know, some foreign person or like, Yep, the black like and it's we're continuing to reinforce these ideas around color and race um, or age or whatever the case may be. And so it's almost like to your point is like, what is the, unless you're like, Hey, I'm looking for such and such, but well, what does he look like? And you're like, you know, maybe like tall, you know, he's, you know, brown complexion, you know, he's black guy wearing a hat, whatever. Like I could see in that situation, but if it's just like, I'm talking about a coworker, like oh yeah there's this you know when i talk about sydney i'm not i i hardly say man like you know it's this you know cuban lady that i work with who like that's not how that typically goes it's like you know who's sydney it's like it's, you know it's, she's our history teacher she's very bright like right like there is it's not it doesn't necessitate that you put it in a category but almost when we ask that like you know are they black are they this are they that it's because we, we almost have this need to, like, categorize people. And, you know, if I say something like, man, we got this new dude that just came in, like, this athlete, 6'5", like, I mean, he's just, you know, super talented guy, and it's like, black guy, white guy, like, right? And it's like, why do, why do I have to put him in this category? Are we trying to, are we trying to preconceive and fit, like, black? Yep, because I know because he's, he's athletic, or like, oh, really? White guy? Oh, um. And that, that game that we play is still putting people in these boxes based on their race. Rather, we're trying to prove it or disapprove it or whatever. And I think there's a, you know, going back to almost the census, the census example um, that, um, that Jimmy was talking about that, I, you know, I, I wonder what, what would happen if we just 
you know, if we could just start to extrapolate those things on one side, I'm afraid because I'm like, I don't know. I'm taking the question deeper than it was, but I, I think it's unnecessary. I like that. Super helpful to Marcus. Hey, so um, we went on, right, uh, and started talking about um, Black Lives Matter um, because we hadn't dug a hole deep enough yet for us to, you know, we, we just wanted to have some more fun. So um, the next slide I threw up was, uh, was a Black Lives Matter slide. And we, remember, we're talking about um, a common understanding of terms. Uh, and so one of the reasons that we uh, addressed this was just the idea of, you know, what, what if you heard your students talking about Black Lives Matter, or if you, you know, saw a kid with, with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, like, what would you assume, what would you think, right, about what was being communicated? And so, um, you know, from, from our uh, questions, right, on Slido, we already know uh, that a lot of people were very, you know, adamant about making sure that we knew that Black Lives Matter, right, is, you know, a Marxist organization, and they're, you know, they're against the family, and yada, yada, yada. And so, one of the things that I, that I threw out was, right, that there's a difference between um, Black Lives Matter as an organization and as a movement, because I mean, the NBA uh, right now, right, everybody's wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. And I, I don't think it's, you know, necessarily just a support of the particular organization, right? I don't think that's what the statement is. I don't think they're saying, hey, this organization's really cool, kind of like, you know, Nike or Adidas, right? You know, like support them, buy their stuff. Um, I think they're, they're saying Black Lives Matter. Um, and then, you know, there's also the, just the, the Black Lives Matter concept, right, as, a, as an individual or a person, right, that, that you would say, right, I think Black Lives Matter. And so as, as, uh, as I was just talking about these different terms, uh, one of the things I threw out, right, was that, you know, within Christianity, we have something very similar uh, to this concept. We've got, you know, Christianity, you could refer to Christianity and, and talk about, you know, the church, the body of Christ, right? Uh, you can talk about individual Christians, and you can talk about Christ himself, who, who is the message, not the messenger. Uh, and just understand that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things within Christianity um, that some people don't like. You know, there's groups like, you know, Westboro Baptist Church that does not represent what I believe, right? But they would be, they would fall under, and what a lot of people think of Christianity is people doing things that are, are completely opposed to the person of Christ, to the cause of Christ, but, you know, but there they are lumped in with, with the rest of, you know, us. And so just that idea that as the world looks at Christianity, um, that it, it has a lot of different things to take into consideration, the church and its, um, you know, its uh, abuses over the years, you know, in, in so many different areas, you can focus on the negative aspects or you can choose to focus on the positive aspects of what the church has done to benefit so many people, right? In times of crisis, who is there? The church, right? Christians. Um, and so just that reality of, of, you know, making sure that we kind of check where our narrative comes from. Um, are you looking for the negative or are you looking for the positive and what a person, you know, is saying? You know, are you trying to understand what they're trying to communicate or are you just taking what's being communicated and, you know, uh, lumping it in with your assumptions that have already been established? Um, and so that was that was part of, you know, the, the concept. I, I think it was uh, to Marcus that was telling me about, you know, a, a friend of his that was saying, um, you know, that uh, if there's a fire on your street, like a house is, you know, on fire and they, they called the fire department, right? And the fire department's driving down your street to go down and get to the house that's on fire, you know, and you're running out there chasing them down saying, hey, my house matters too. And they're like, yeah, yeah, your, your house does matter, but there's, there's one that's on fire over here. So we'll, we'll be back in a minute to your house. Just that, that concept, right? That, you know, there's so many different ways of communicating this. So when somebody says Black Lives Matter, there's an immediate response and you're like, well, all lives matter, right? And uh, yeah, yes, all, all people are made in the image of God. And that's true. 
And it's, it's actually what I think, you know, that the concept of Black Lives Matter is actually trying to communicate that all lives matter. There's just a particular instance right here where something has happened in our culture that has lowered a particular, you know, group of people where they don't feel like they matter. So we need to remind people, yeah, hey, they do matter. So by saying Black Lives Matter, you're saying all lives matter from my perspective, right? But some people don't see that. Uh, and then we had a, a particular instance where um, a school in our area uh, started out the day right, where they had signs and, and things like that. And it said, blue lives matter, right? Re you know, representing, you know, police officers. And of course, blue lives do matter, right? You know, police officers do matter. But in saying that, one of the things that we don't take into consideration is, unless you're going to say all lives matter, right? Blue lives, black lives, green lives, orange lives, whatever you, right? If you don't say all of them, by saying one of them, some people feel like you're leaving them out of the conversation. And, and we don't really think about that. We say, you know, blue lives matter, but some person may take that as a, well, wait, are you saying that black lives don't matter? And so just, just understanding that as we get into this concept and, and we talk about um, these common understanding of terms, right, that we really need to be able to weigh our words um, and understand that it's not just the narrative that we think we're communicating that's important, but the way that it's being received by people. And if they don't receive it in the way that we intend, just understand, right, that goes back to our community values, right? You need to understand that, you know, it's not necessarily what you intend, but it's how it's received that really is an important aspect. So your intention may be fantastic and great and wonderful, but as people are receiving it in a different way, you need to evaluate, hey, am I, am I really communicating this in the right way? And so um, that's why we, we put up the slide uh, to talk about those things, right, and, and just understand, right, as, as, we, as we wrestled with that, that concept, um, you know, we, we got a bunch of questions uh, that dealt with that particular issue. So anybody want to add anything from what I shared? I just want to say when we, um, at the very beginning of our training, when we opened up Slido and we said, by the way, here are some of the terms that we're discussing and we included Black Lives Matter. Those questions came before we even just started discussing Black Lives Matter. So um, it, it's, a, it's a controversial topic. It's a controversial discussion that we did a training on. But it was interesting because the overwhelming majority of responses I got were we needed to have this conversation. Because now when I have students come into my classroom, it's easier for me to engage them and ask, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, let's go deeper into this discussion. It almost gave the teachers permission to now enter into the discussion and it assisted them in that. But that said, at the beginning on Slido, the questions came really fast in regards to Black Lives Matter. So, um, Dan, the next term you also hit was privilege and that it can be a heated term also. So you want to go ahead and take that one as well? Yeah, and I just want to throw out for those who are listening, right, you may be thinking, you know, um, hey, why is Dan Panetti even on here? And it's, it's uh, because they give me the really, really hard stuff like, hey, Dan, you get Black Lives Matter and white privilege to talk about, right? So I, I, I need a pay raise. Um, you know, <laughs> it's hazard pay. Yeah, we're going to renegotiate my contract here, right, from, from free and abused Right to, to uh, at least I get something. Dan, anyway, Dan's going to take his talents to South Beach. <laughs> Try. Hey, 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 hey! If anyone's going back to South Beach, it's going to be me. Amen. <laughs> so we we start talking about um, privilege, um, and just you know, again that that common um, understanding of when when we talk about privilege, right? It's usually in terms of you know white privilege. Um, and, you know, when we talk about that, what do, what do people mean? What, what exactly are we talking about? And I know 
um, that you know there's a there's a common understanding right among white people right that the idea of white privilege is saying that everything's been given to you and you didn't work hard for it right and that's not the concept at all of what white privilege is trying to communicate right it's trying to say that um, within the terms of talking about um, areas of diversity uh, areas of you know ethnicity right that being white in a majority culture right in America uh, there is a, a particular privilege uh, that is associated with being white, not that it's it's your fault, right? Um, you know, but there's a certain privilege associated with being white that really these racial issues, um, you can simply choose to ignore. You don't have to enter in this conversation. Um, these things, in, in, in a sense, don't necessarily affect you, um, that when there's a racial injustice, it's not a racial injustice against a white person. Uh, that in this particular culture, because... Um, you know, whites have predominantly been the majority, uh, you know, in this culture, uh, that when we're talking about racial injustice, we're going to talk about that in terms of that injustice being done to somebody who's not white. So from a white privilege standpoint, it's like, oh, I can choose to ignore it. And so uh, one of the things that I talked about from a cultural standpoint, which I, you know, have always thought of, right, was uh, when Martin Luther King um, was, was really trying to help the white culture understand why this racial injustice should be important to them, like, you know, if you, if you saw the marches, protests that MLK would lead, it's not to help educate black people about, hey, there's an injustice going on here, right? Black people knew about it. Uh, it was to draw attention to the white community to say, you need to be concerned about this as well. And one of the things that he wrote about, and he put this right in the, you know, the, the letter, you know, from the Birmingham jail, jail, was he said this phrase, he said, you know, injustice, um, you know, anywhere, right, is a threat to justice everywhere. And, and I, I've wrestled with that, you know, concept and I've thought about it. And I, I thought, you know what, I understand totally what he was trying to do. But, you know, unfortunately, from a Christian standpoint, he shouldn't have to do it. He shouldn't have to tell white people, hey, this may impact you as well. I should be able to see people not as white, black, brown, whatever. I should be able to see people as children of God made in his image. And I should be concerned about any injustice done to any human being whether they're white, black, brown, green, doesn't matter. What Martin Luther King was trying to say is, hey, this could impact you as well. And so I thought about, and I shared this too, is, you know, uh, Martin Niemuller was one of the Germans who was writing, you know, in the time that, you know, Hitler was running across, you know, Germany and taking people in, you know, to concentration camps. And one of the things that Niemuller wrote afterwards was, um, you know, when they came for the uh, the socialists, you know, I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't say anything. When they came for the, you know, you know, union workers, I wasn't a union worker, so I didn't say anything. When they came for the Jews, I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't say anything. When they came for me, there was nobody left to say anything, right? And I think what Neumuller was trying to express was, right, when you see an injustice anywhere, it's a threat to not just you in the future, but it's a threat to everybody. And you should say something as soon as you see it. It doesn't just have to, one day it's going to impact you. That's, that's too late. That as a Christian perspective, we should see an injustice in our culture, and we should stand against that injustice because God hates injustice period. God hates injustice, period. It bothers our dad, so it should bother us if we're his kids. And so that's the idea that this privilege, you know, was, was so important for us to, to wrestle with. Um, I gave a, a different example, right, to take kind of, you know, it out of white privilege. Uh, and I said, you know, when I was uh, at Indiana University, I was studying, uh, and this is true, I was 
studying. So, you know, people are like, you know, I don't believe he was ever in a library studying. It's true. I was. I was at a library studying on the campus at IU, uh, and it was, it was getting late, and uh, a young lady actually came up to me, and she said, hey, would you mind walking me to my dorm room? And I said, sure, I can do that. You know, I was brought up to, you know, be one of those nice and respectful young men, right? And if somebody needs help, I'll help them out. And so as we were walking, just the thought entered my mind. I was kind of like, hey, why did, why did you ask me to, to walk you back to your dorm room? And she literally said this. She goes, are you stupid? And it just kind of hit me like, uh, no, I was just kind of asking a question like, you know, what's going on? She goes, do you not know that IU uh, has the third highest incidence of rape on campus? Like, you know, you're so ignorant. And I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know that, right? And so that reality, right, was a, was a male privilege, right? That as a, as a man walking on that campus, I didn't have to be concerned with those things. I could walk on that campus anytime I wanted. But if I were a female on that campus, I got to pay attention to some things. I've got to make sure that I walk home early or I've got somebody who takes me home. And so just that idea, right, that privilege isn't a bad thing, but it comes with a certain responsibility to pay attention to other people that don't have your particular privilege is something that we need to be aware of. And so Right. That's why we brought that particular word in. And of course, we got some questions off of that as well. Anybody else want to share anything about the privilege word? No, I think it's, it's important when, when we discuss privilege, it's, we always discuss white privilege. But there are different types of privilege, like you brought up a gender privilege. So I do think it's important to understand that there is definitely white privilege, but there are other privileges. And that it isn't anything negative against privilege, like you said, it's simply about the responsibility that comes with it. So yeah, we did have questions. And I think what's interesting is when we did the Slido with the questions, they didn't necessarily all fit under certain categories of words that we were discussing. So we kind of piecemealed them out and said, okay, I think this one fits more under privilege. And so I guess we can start with some of these questions. One of them was narratives are said to be different and neither right or wrong is a minority. Again, we have the term minority. So is an underrepresented narrative to be giving a consideration Consideration different than a majority or a represented one in some way. So does anyone want to jump into narratives? I think that this probably fits under privilege better than any of the other categories we brought up. And so is there a consideration that needs to be said for the um, underrepresentative narrative over the representative narrative? I forget the gentleman's name. I just blanked. But the concept is still worth sharing. So I think one of the important things to remember with in terms of narrative, um, we have to tie history into this as well. Um, but the quote basically says, right, where there is no um, common memory, right, we, it's going to be hard pressed for us to be able to find right, a present unity. And so, um, you know, w what they were getting at is like, you know, the America that we're typically um, taught and most of us think of in terms of you know, our disposition towards it and our history and all of this that, that we're brought through is, is a narrative of America. Um, the narrative for America from the perspective of a Native American would be very different um, um, than that, you know, commonly skewed narrative. Same thing from uh, Latin Americans, same thing from the standpoint of African Americans. And so as we're presently today thinking through and talking about um, narratives and, and the way certain things affect us or the way we um, interpret certain situations, um, we have to understand that, right, we are, we are coming from it with different footing 
And in order for us to be able to move forward in a unified way, we somehow have to be able to um, at least come together and hear and see a commonality in, in our, in our narratives. So, you know, in terms of, um, you know, when we're speaking about, about white privilege, I think one of the, one of the ways that I've tried to, to think through this, um, I had a conversation with a friend the other day that I said, if we think about America as a house, um, and it, it's not a new build, right? Let's say we bought it in a, you know, historic area, you know, where the fifth or sixth or seventh owner of the house and, um, right that the house itself is not just a a racist house and just you know everything and it is wrong um but also race is very much so a part of the house and not a part of the house in a way where it's like oh well if i just like take this like you know picture down it's hideous i don't like it i can throw it away um but it's actually more so like you know you go you bought the house and there's this big wall that cuts off the kitchen from the living room and you're like hey we want to renovate it and knock this wall down we have an open concept. And when the contractor comes, he tells you, hey, there's a major support beam uh, that runs through this wall. And if you just knock the wall out, it's gonna compromise the structure of the home. And that's really what's at stake here, right? So when we talk about white privilege, what we have to, what we have to uh, realize is, right, we, we are all living in a home, we're all in it. And what we're basically, what we're basically alluding to, right, is there, there are structures that support the home in such a way that doesn't make it harder, right? I'm not saying that your life isn't hard, but like we say, right, your your skin color doesn't make your life harder within the house. Um, whereas for other minority groups, um, it does. And the reality is, for us to get get the, get the wall changed, it's gonna it's gonna cause one. It's gonna be very costly. It's gonna cost a lot of rap. It's gonna be a very radical change. Um, and there's going to be a lot that has to be done in order for the house to, right, to not be compromised. And so I think, you know, whereas seeing it as something that is saying, oh, well, that means that, I don't know, I, like you say, I, I feel like it's often seen as this, um, this negative. But what we have to remember is part of that negative is, right, this inheritance that we have of a narrative that has said whiteness is necessarily um, uh, naturally better than black, whatever we label that. And so the remnants of that, if not alleviated, they're, they're still at work in our society. And so it's only by being aware of it and being able to recognize it that we're going to be able to uh, upend it so that that's no longer the case. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. And I think curriculum-wise, our narrative has to be diverse because our classrooms are diverse. And even if it's not diverse, you know, um, if we have a classroom full of Latino children, they need to know the Native American perspective. They need to know the, 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 the Anglo-American perspective on this issue. Um, and what we find is we're looking at these different things is that ultimately universal themes are going to bubble up to the top. Family is valued, right? Um, and sometimes we'll also see differences. Well, why is it that one, um, one ethnic group values this in contrast to this ethnic group valuing this? And if you don't have that diverse narrative, you don't oftentimes understand the result. You know, when you look at the narrative of the white settlers 
and their approach to land when they arrived in the New World, in contrast to the narrative of the Native American and their spiritual approach to the land, that land cannot be owned by an individual. You're bringing the individualistic you know, private property idea to the New World. So now you have white settlers who believe that you can fence off land and own it. And you have the Native American who's like, no, it was given to us for everyone's use and our job is to take care of it. And you have these two narratives and these two cultures clashing on the same continent. It helps you understand why we wound up with the result that we wound up with. That's one of the questions that somebody asked. Um, It says, my students are all Caucasian. How would you suggest bringing in diversity mindset on a daily basis into our classroom to instill acceptance and dispel apathy, right? The, The idea is even if you all had only one race in your classroom, everybody's white, everybody's black, everybody's Hispanic, whatever it is. The importance of diversity and and making sure that students get to hear different narratives on things, get to explore, not just, you know, well, this is one way of thinking about things is so important for our students. It is such a benefit to them to wrestle with things from different perspectives and different ideas that even if we were just talking about, you know, one of, one of the classrooms had, you know, pictures of all the presidents up, you know, and, and basically, you know, before Obama, right, you had pictures, you know, of, of, you know, 44 white guys. And the idea of, you know, making sure that you have a different narrative, those aren't the only 44 people that, you know, they may have been the only 44 people that were president, but they weren't the only 44 people that had significance in this particular country. And so, you know, how do we, how do we let our kids know that, you know, different people play different roles and those people look differently. And, you know, there were women that were important in the founding of this country. There were, you know, yeah. Italians, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, men, and Jews. Not president, but there were Italians, right? And Jews, yes. and, you know, black, you know, men, yep. there were you know, people who were enslaved that are important <laughs> figures in our nation's history. And so if you just focus on one particular area and you don't give the kids a tremendous, uh, you know, understanding of the diversity and, and the different voices that spoke into this country, um, or, you know, not just this country, but around the world, right? I think we're doing our students a disservice, even Absolutely. if they all look the same. It's like they need to know more than just other people that look just like them. So mm-hmm. that, that's, a, that's an important aspect, Cindy, that, that you're bringing up, right? Not only does it make them better informed, but it really helps them to understand certain conflicts or certain, you know, uh, historical aspects that you go, oh, I, I, I didn't know that, right? I just thought it was this way, but you go, oh, no, that you know, here's how the different people saw the world differently. And, you know, when those two worldviews collide, you know, certain things are going to happen. So that's, a, that's an important aspect that, that people are interested in finding out, you know, why do we include, you know, diversity, right, in our curriculum? I think it makes our students better students. That's one of the cool things. It's not curriculum-wise, but, you know, when President Truman signed the executive order and he desegregated the military, he knew exactly what he was doing because he understood that the way the military goes, society will eventually go, right? So this military that had been previously segregated where we had these, these men who were willing to die for a nation historically from, the, the, from, the, from 1776, they were willing to die for the United States understanding that they weren't being treated equally by the United States, but they so loved the country and they so believed in the ideals of our founding motto that all men are created equal and they were so committed to the nation living it out, right, that although they were being held back and marginalized because of their ethnicity, they were willing to die for the flag. So here's President Truman signing this executive order in part because he knew he couldn't get it through Congress where he desegregates the military. And now all of a sudden, the man sitting in the foxhole with you does not look like you. And what you discover is he is just like you. 
He may not look like you, but he's just like you. And that's why even if you have and you know you have a, a a classroom that is all Anglo or all Latino or all African American, when you include the richness of a diverse narrative, it helps us understand we are all the same because we're all image bearers, right? Even though we may have a different narrative, um, but we're all image bearers. Um, it shows us that we're all the same. You know, and if we have a minority student sitting in our class for the first time, they may actually look in that mirror and see a little reflection of themselves. Thank you, Adrian Rich, for giving us, giving me that example that I continually come back to. To Marcus, did you have Marcus. something you wanted to add? Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I was going to anticipate a question, which I think in your response, you hit right on the nail. But just to the, the person who may be hearing this and saying, but like, you know, at at what rate do we do this? And in doing so, will we, are we, are you asking me to like compromise the, the story of our nation? Or are you asking me to kind of tell that, that narrative of like, you know, America not being, you know, this country, are you telling me I should be ashamed of my history? And I, and I don't think um, that it's either of those things. I think what, what you said is, it's true. I just think it's a matter of looking at it holistically. Um, Man, I'm going to tell you, so I became a huge fanatic over the, the summer of the play Hamilton. And yes. I am not like a, I'm not a um, musical person or play person, but I'm all about that play. And what I think is so beautiful about it is it does that. Like there are parts of Hamilton's story that you should be, that you should feel like ashamed, or not that you should feel ashamed of, but that you should look at and be like, yeah, that wasn't good. Like, Mm -hmm. cheated on his wife that was bad but then you also can look at other parts and say man but he really this part is really impressive about him and what i think the important part about our country is it's made up of people who are complex um and i think the the, the problem is that sometimes we've we've created this very like flat line like the unrealistic character right so from a literary standpoint you know some of the the most beautiful novels and some of the greatest epics that we've ever seen are, are made up of very complex characters that you can't really just put in pockets of, you know, well, this is the good guy, this is bad guy. Everything he did was good. Everything he did was bad. Like that makes for a bad book, but there's actually, you know, beauty when we're able to see, right? Because what we, what we know to be true about humans, because we know what's true about us, is that there are things that I excel in and, and great achievements that I've made, but there are also moments in my life that I'm very ashamed of that have been very low. And, that's the case with everybody in our country, with our heroes, with mm -hmm. our leaders, with the people that we look up with just in our communities. And I think there is a, it's not so much of it being the either or, it's just a matter of us telling the whole story. Yeah. The most patriotic thing we can do is teach history, honestly. I love that. Well, we had one other. And that's not original to me, by the way. I have to, I can't remember who said that. Um, but that's not original to me. I can't take credit for that one. There was one other question that dealt with privilege, and this one is a touchy subject. And um, it said, how can I gracefully and intelligently answer the white students on questions about college admissions? And um, to be really honest, I'm not 100% sure I understand this question. Um, I think it might have to do with uh, kids, if students ask, you know, do I don't know. I don't know what it's asking. If students ask, do underrepresented people groups have an advantage over me? Or how do I answer questions about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Do any of y'all have any insight into what this question is actually asking? 
Yeah, I'm thinking it deals with affirmative action. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that, especially in the last few years, especially the University of Texas in Austin, um, it's been very difficult for a white student to get into the University of Texas. Um, and actually, it's been very almost impossible for an Asian student to get into the University of Texas. And there's a huge lawsuit against them, right? Asian students who have, you know, perfect scores on the SAT and still don't get in, right? So there's just this idea, right, of, you know, when, when we deal with um, culture, um, sometimes, uh, you know, there is, there is a, a readjustment of things, a, a reevaluation of things. Um, and you begin to look at and say, you know, as, as culture tries to uh, level the playing field, so to speak, right? How do they do it? And sometimes, right, they do it in ways that, um, in, in a sense, are unfair to other people, right? Because uh, things have not been fair before. And so now things are, are bouncing in another side. I think I mentioned in one of our other podcasts, right, that uh, the University of Texas at Austin, only 5% of its uh, student population is African-American. Right, which is which is astronomically low, um, and so I think you know UT is trying to figure out how do we increase right our diversity, especially right with students of color, especially with African Americans, and so they may be more um, apt to take a uh, you know an applicant who's a- African American as opposed to uh, somebody who's Asian or somebody who is white, uh, and so what do you what do you do with that? How do you explain that right to a white student? Um, and, and I think any time that there's a, you know, in a sense, a reverse discrimination, right, an affirmative action thing, um, you know, that, that's a very uh, difficult aspect, um, you know, to take something that's been historically unfair to do something now that's unfair to try to balance the two unfairnesses, right, and say, how, how do those things work out? And so, um, you know, Cindy, to Marcus, what do you guys, what do you guys think about that? Because I think that was kind of the crux of the question. You know, what, what would your response be to that question? I was sitting here thinking, you know, when I, when I filled out my application to go to grad school at the University of Miami, it was on the, gra- it was on the application. And I don't, like the, I don't like the question. I understand the necessity of it, but I don't like the question. You know, if I was going to get into the University of Miami to get my grad degree, I wanted it to be on my own merits. I wanted it to be not because I was a woman, not because I was a Latina, but because I had the brains and I had busted my backside to get the scores um, and to learn what needed to be learned in order to get in there. Um, but I understand the necessity as well, because historically, these underrepresented groups were kept out of these schools. You know, we've often, you know, to Marcus, um, I know has referred to it, um, and then I think all of us in the, in, along the way in our podcast have referred to the fact, you know, that Dr. King had to go north in order to get his seminary degree. You know, and then they faulted him because, quote unquote, he came under the, the influence of liberal theologians. Well, he came under the influence of liberal theologians because conservative theologians in the South wouldn't let them in, in through the doors. You know, so I understand the necessity. Um, I can't speak for anyone else. Right. And that's one of the things that we always have to remember. You know, I might be a Latina, but I don't speak for all Latinas or for the Latino population in general. And in part because the Latino generated population is incredibly diverse. You know, the, the Cuban side of me is different than the Mexican side of me, right? The Cuban ancestry and the Mexican ancestry, are, are, they're, they're different cultures. They have different perspectives. Now we have some things in common, but um, so I understand its necessity. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it kind of irks me when I have to check a box because I don't like being boxed in. You know, I understand why it's needed on the census you know, sort of deal. But I, I wonder if maybe that's something that needs to be a little different. You know, if you go to South Florida, I would venture to say that the vast majority of people that are applying to schools in, in Florida, in South Florida, Lake Okeechobee down, um, are probably going to be of Hispanic um, ancestry. 
our Latino ancestry. So would it be different there than it would be here in Texas? I don't know. That's something that, that maybe we, we can talk about one day when we're all just sitting around and, and eating our enchiladas and our tacos and things of that sort um, the next time we get to meet for lunch. Um, but anyway, okay, I'm done. To Marcus, it's yours because you're always more eloquent than I am. That is not true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, it is. And thanks for the compliment um, earlier it's Earlier in this podcast, by the way. So I'm, I'm going to just be honest at the onset and say that I am not like, I have not landed, I feel like, well on this. And so I, I feel like it would, I'm going to be honest in just saying where my wrestle is. Um, like you, Sydney, I definitely see where it's needed. Um, I also see how it can be um, seen as, you know, problematic. Um, this is where my wrestle is. You know, I had a mentor tell me, um, you never want to be in a place, you never want to be put in a place of leadership where your character can't keep you. And I think about that in a lot of ways, rather that's skill, rather that's, right, like, don't just give me a job because of, my race and I'm actually not good at the job. I feel like that, that actually does more of a harm than a good. Like if I get put into a school or a program and I'm not actually fit for it, I'm assuming that's the case. Then, you know, I don't want to do that because then now I'm going to be there and I'm going to struggle and maybe that could have more adverse effects than good. Um, at the same time, I don't want to assume that because I think there are plenty of students who never get the opportunity to get in, but get in and do excel. And I think there's something to be said about that of, man, this door, had it not been open with this student ever been able to rise to the occasion, because we all know sometimes when students are faced with that challenge, they're able to rise. There's a part of me on the other side that wants to say, um, welcome to the, my, um, to, the, to the experience of being excluded. Um, there's another part of me that says, man, is that the best is that the best way to approach it? Um, so I don't want to, like I say, I don't want to land my foot there either. Um, because like you say, there's one unfairness cancel out another unfairness. Mm -hmm. And then on a completely other track, there's another part of me that's like super HBCUs anyway. And so like, <laughs> <laughs> um, where I'm like, I would love, like, this is my dream. Like, all of my, my wonder, wonderful athletes, and there's actually a few um, young, um, like, college prospects for basketball, and they've been kind of like, you know, I follow them on social media, and they've been talking about teaming up and going to an HBCU and trying to win a national championship, you know, at a historically black college. So, like, I just feel like there's so many aspects to it, and then I'll end my thought here is I think as we as a country continue to try to wrestle with how to do this, we are going to have moments like this where there are going to be some things we're going to try and it's going to be like, this didn't work. All right, let's do something different. And then we're going to try something else and we're going to be like, ooh, you know, that wasn't it. And then we'll probably land on some stuff and be like, all right, hey, this actually works out. Here's my hope as a member of the church as we, as we navigate this. Is, you know, I can't speak for everybody else, but I hope for us that we would have the humility to admit when something has gone awry to say, you know what, that wasn't the best thing for the kingdom. And, you know, change pace. And then, but we would also have the humility when we do see something that's well, even if it's not necessarily a, 
direct benefit for me because I don't think everything that benefits everybody else has to benefit me. So for instance, if there was something that got passed that was like, hey, we recognize this Native American land and we're going to give them, you know, X amount of territory for blah, blah, blah. You know, I can celebrate their win without being, well, what happened to my 40 acres? In the, like, okay. it's just, hey, that's a good thing that happened. And like, I'm, a, I'm happy with that. And just because it didn't, you know, happen to me at this moment, I'm not going to gonna bash it. And so I, I, I don't know, I just feel like it's a, it's a complex web of, of variables. Um, but as believers, like I say, I just hope that we can navigate that terrain with a posture of grace um, and patience and not be super critical all at once. I am, I am probably less sensitive than all of y'all. So when the students come in and ask me questions like that, um, I'm the one who says, you know what? And the university has the right to decide the community that they want to build on their campus. And then I also tell them, don't forget the sovereignty of God and that he will place you right where he wants you, no matter what the obstacles are. So I definitely say that I'm probably the least empathetic <laughs> than all of y'all on that. But Dan, you wanted to add one more thing before I wrap yeah, up. Yeah, you, I mean, you're going all you know, super spiritual on, the, on us on that. So yeah, that's fantastic. Great. What, what, I, was, what I was thinking, right, was um, that it's, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of our students and, and, you know, us individually, right, have a very myopic view of things. I look at my kid's test score uh, and I say, hey, you know, you know, Jimmy needs to get in because he got this particular test score, right? And we don't step back and just say, here's the deal, you know, since, since the 1600s with Harvard, black people were not allowed to be in college. So they don't have a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, a great-great-great-great, right? They don't have a history of availability to educational opportunities that so many of us do. Now, now, does that mean that it's specifically my family that has? And the answer is, I don't know, right? You know, my family came over from Italy a number of years ago. So, you know, I'm, I'm, they were, you know, well-educated somewhere along the way. But, but just the idea of... We have to think about things not just in terms of how it affects my kids, right? But we have to be able to look at things from a historical perspective and say, yes, the, the, the playing field has been disadvantageous, unfair in a particular way. And there's going to be lots of different ways to try to balance that that are, aren't going to be the greatest thing, as, as Tamarka said, right? I mean, you, you, you try something, you go, oh, that, that's not, that didn't work, this isn't helpful, whatever. But for the world to try to figure these things out and at least pay attention to, I think it's funny because like, it seems like the church is behind the world in trying to deal with these issues, right? At least the world's saying, hey, there's something that's unfair, let's do something about it. We may not agree with it, we may not like it, but they're doing something, right? And the, and the church is just sitting there, you know, not even paying attention. So from a Christian perspective, I think we need to be able to say, yes, God, where do you want me to be? If the door closes, God's sovereign, right? He's going to open up a door for me to go someplace else. Um, we also need to realize that, you know, I've got parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents that were, that were all college educated and other people don't have that, right? And it is a particular advantage that comes to me from coming from that particular background. And here's the deal. How do you give that to other people? How do you help people out? Well, education is, is one of the great ways of doing that. So we need to make sure that if we all want to have a better 
community, if we all want to, you know, explore this idea of human flourishing, right, that there are going to have to be some things that are done um, that may not be what's best for me, but it's best for our community and best for others. You know, what does that look like? Do I have to agree with everything? Um, but I, I wish that we could get into these conversations a little bit better and more educated as opposed to just how does it affect me and my kid and whether he got into college or not. That's not the only question we should be asking. Marcus? And we can't make a distinction. This isn't a matter of kids getting to go to college or not. It's them getting to go to a particular college of choice or not, correct? Right. And that once they're in, you know, once a student is in, that they are held to the same standard as every other student. You know, let's not cheapen the experience by dropping the standard. Now, that might mean that, that some students are going to need more support than others. You know, we've all been running down the same lane in the race, but, you know, the guy running next to me, his lane may have been more clear than mine. Mine might have, you know, tumbleweed and potholes and a wall in the middle of it that I have to climb over. Um, but once I'm in, or anyone else is in, everyone needs to be held to the same standard. I'm going to go ahead. Um, this podcast, as you can tell, um, we only had an hour with our faculty and staff, and we could have gone for probably two or three days on these topics. We still have some questions, you know, some other terminology, microaggressions, intersectionality, that we will cover in a, in a future podcast and hopefully answer those questions in that. But I hope that what you're learning is that these conversations are necessary for our faculty and staff. They're necessary for them to wrestle with. They're necessary for us to wrestle with together so that that when we're with our students, we're able to engage them fully in these discussions. Um, in our description of this podcast, we're going to go ahead and link the community values. We will also link the slides that we use for our faculty training so that you can see the slides that we went through. There were blank slides with the terms, and those were the times when the faculty and staff were called to discuss in small groups their thoughts on the meanings of the words, and then we came back with an explanation of the words as a whole. And then we will also link Timothy Keller's article that Tamarcus referenced when he discussed biblical justice. And so we hope that this has been beneficial and helpful. And um, we also hope that you will tune in for future discussions of other topics such as microaggressions, intersectionality, diversity, equity, and inclusion, what those all include. And that um, as a understanding that we're all on this path of learning together. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you for listening to Grace 360. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes and are not intended to be divisive or inflammatory in nature. We hope you listened and learned as much as we have in the process of producing the show and pray you'll join us for our next episode. You can find us on social media. We would love to have you as part of our discussion with your thoughts and questions. Once again, thank you for listening to Grace 360.